0: Okay, well tonight uh, we are, from memory, who was here last time? Uh, Okay, well we're doing Habakkuk only, originally it was two talks, it's now gonna be three, because as I prepared this talk, I realized the material um, was too dense to just package up into one talk. Uh, Why Habakkuk? Um, I think I mentioned last time, I won't go through it all, but it's it's one of the so-called minor prophets. Um, if you read the Minor Prophets, there are 12 of them. Um, they're packed up at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, they are minor in length only. Um, if you read them, they are works of literary genius, prophetic insight, um, and um, well worth, well worth the, the effort. And of these, Habakkuk, who we don't know very much about at all, is very unusual. It's a a very unique book. Um, Habakkuk was roughly, as far as we know, a contemporary of Jeremiah, which puts him right at the end game of Judah's history. And to understand the trauma, I, I think today we can look at Ukraine. They're looking at the obliteration of their nation, their identity, their culture. Well, just imagine for Ukraine, you're Judah and you're looking at a similar thing obliteration of the, of the nation now the obliteration of the nation would be worse if you also believed you were the ones to whom was given the law of moses and the vision of god on the earth this is the only monotheism in the world what you know the belief in one god had you know, we I used to think that was a common sense belief. It's not a common sense belief. In the ancient Near Eastern world, nobody believed in one God, among other things. So to understand the sense of uh, danger and trauma that Habakkuk lived within, put yourself in Ukraine, but make it worse. So uh, we get three chapters and they're condensed. Um, and uh, And what makes them really unique, and I'm not going to talk about it this week, talked about it last time, is that they are a monologue. They're an interior monologue. There's actually, most of the prophecies are the extant text of the the judgments and commentaries of the prophet. This is more about the thoughts of Habakkuk, what he was feeling with what he saw were absolute anomalies and paradoxes between a sovereign God and these catastrophic events. So it's it's really a journey of doubt and despair. That's it's an inner journey. I liken it to Hamlet as a interior monologue. To that end, to that end, um, people more and more are looking not just at Habakkuk but perhaps at the rest of the Bible through a new lens, which we could call a literary lens. Um, as an example, um, a good article which. We men- was mentioned last time by Paul Oslington is um, this one, um, which we, I'll, 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 I'll see if we can put up on our website. It's called Habakkuk the Faithful Dissident by Matthew Anstey. And he looks at it as a, he calls it a performative techni- uh, uh, genre. He means it's drama. It means, really, if we want to understand Habakkuk, we should turn it into a play and act it out. Because it's, it, what you see in a play, when different voices are, are talking, you're not getting, here's the answer, you're getting dialogue, which is what the hell's going on, and that cut and thrust. So that's what Habakkuk gives you, pretty unique. And it, what's unique about Habakkuk is that we need to know as Christians, this is the canon. So the canon seems to authorise doubt, questions, journeys, rather than just here's all the answers. So that was all last week. Uh, This week, I want to uh, look at a very, a topic that at face values, Hampercut would would appear to have nothing to do with, which is um, a, a topic that Andrew and I have talked about for some time, and we're gonna do in more detail next year, and Andrew, I don't know if you know but I don't know what we're going to talk about or even quite where we'll come to but the topic is really important and it's increasingly controversial it's the topic of um, penal substitution now um, I think penal substitution has has been seen and is seen as the heart of the gospel in other words Christ, that God the Father punished the Son for the sins of the world. Certainly as an evangelical Christian growing up for the majority of my life, that's what I believed. Um, It's true to say there is a growing unease with this because of the kind of God it seems to imply. Angry God, um, among others. Now this controversy... Um, which i predict will only get worse in a good way is i think best exemplified in miniature by the controversy over what has become one of the quote-unquote best hymns of the modern church in christ alone you know that one i'm not going to sing it for you but do we all know in christ alone my hope is found um by uh Getty, yes. There's Somebody wrote the lyrics and, and that might have been Getty and then uh, the song's author, Stuart Townend and Keith Getty. I think Getty wrote the music and Townend the lyrics and what they tried to do in this song was write a song that captured um, the sweep of the gospel the biggest picture of the gospel they could put forward. Um, and it's a, it, it is a, it's a, look, it's a great song. They did a great job. Uh, the question is, without wanting to criticize them because um, a, I couldn't write a song to save myself and, <laughs> uh, and, and wanting to acknowledge it's a wonderful song. Um, the question is, did they succeed? And in particular, the line that became controversial is this, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. And the question is, did they get that right? Now, people who didn't think they got it right were the whole Presbyterian Church of America. Because when the Presbyterian Church of America compiled their hymnal, they put into their compilation an alternative rendering of the middle lines which they had found, they said later, this obviously became a copyright issue, by the way. Um, They uh, found um, their alternative was the lyrics that said, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They changed to the love of God was magnified so they changed the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified that then led to a copyright battle and um, which ended up with the hymns the the guys who wrote the hymn saying no 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 we don't agree with that we won't let that happen um, so they withdrew the hymn from the Presbyterian hymnal So that's an example of what's happening. And and when they did, well, the Presbyterians, who were quite nice about it, said, look, we've got no problem with the wrath of God. There's plenty of wrath of God hymns and wrath of God. We've got no problem. Our problem is with the words, was satisfied. That was what they rejected. This idea of a judging God who had a high moral code, who required for that code, payment and poured the payment on his son. That's what they rejected. Now, I grew up for 30 years of my life thinking that was entirely orthodox and that's how we understand redemption. And the question is, well, is it? Is it? Um, Clearly, uh, from what I've just read you, it's not. And that's not minor. A probably more, slightly more balanced example would be Tom Wright. Now, you can Google um, and find him being asked this very question, what does he think of penal substitution? And like Tom Wright at his best, he's, it's a bit wriggly what he says. <laughs> um, but clearly, at the, he says it's overemphasised. He said it's not the only way of looking at what happened at Calvary, and it's got way overemphasised. So and he's, he's very eloquent about that. What he then says about it, so what, is less clear. However, um, he wrote a whole book, which it probably, and I haven't read the whole book, just part of it, um, which is actually true of any book on my my library shelf. Um, But anyway, if you wanted to pursue it, I think the book's well worth pursuing. It's called The Day the Revolution Began, one of his latest books. Certainly in the opening of that, he gives a very, very good coverage of the growing controversy and where it all began. So when I first came across this, I was initially a bit shocked when I say came across it, let's say it was 10 years ago. What became clear to me as I looked into it and when when we get, when I think Andrew and I next year we do we're gonna do some talks on this, Andrew, I hope you agree to do the talk Um, because you got me thinking on it. (laughs) What became clear to me was at the very least the penal substitution model is a post-medieval model. It was not the dominant model of the period called the patristics. They didn't think of it that way. Uh, Their model loosely called Christus Victor was different. And these people are in my view, far the profoundest theologians the church has created. I'm reading Maximus the Confessor at the moment, Um, try Maximus on for size, Um, or Gregory Nazianzus. They they didn't think this way. So this was all a shock to me. So I think that it's well worth looking at carefully. And tonight um, I want to kind of just lay the groundwork and. These two talks are really more an introduction to the topic. So let me, um, let me, uh, is that, by the way, is anyone, I'll pause there and I'll say, has anyone got any particular shocks, questions, thoughts they want to throw in before I dive on in?
1: I'm just thinking my 30-year-old son raised this whole issue a few years ago and (laughs) (laughs) I <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I don't think it's actually very attractive to non-Christians, put it that way, um, for whatever reason. And, and, and I used to be sh- like you shocked, like, well, what's wrong with this? You know, I, I was, My dear wife, would say, I was very eloquent on the penal substitution. <laughs> um, any other questions, thoughts? Do we agree it's worth looking at? Um, well, look, he, 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 let's let's kind of begin and
1: uh... it, it strikes me that yep. they had such a bigger picture of the gospel in that patristic era, you know, and that seems to be locked into even Greek thinking and thought and their understanding of what they heard from the apostles. And, and but over the ages, we reduce everything and overemphasize things and lose
0: that amazing vision of the gospel. Yeah, I agree. And, and, uh, you, you... Yeah, that's cool. I, um, I'll just repeat that because some of that won't be picked up. I, I think, Michael, you begin by saying, you sort of suspect that the Church Fathers just had a bigger concept of the gospel uh, than we do. And I think, Andrew, you back that up. And I've never done what Andrew suggested is uh, on a wet Sunday afternoon, presumably with a glass of red wine in hand, (laughs) Um, which I think is actually really cool, is to take the word gospel and when it's in the New Testament and see how it's described. I think this is really good. And and I I like where, where, guys, your comments take us. Sorry for this thing flicking on and off, but if you can... Um, which is the word gospel, good news. I mean, this is, if it is good news, uh, expansive, uh, mind-blowing, paradigm-shifting good news. And if we shrink it, then, you know, we're not doing God a good service. Um, I used to say years ago, like, you know, uh, if we were God's if we were the satchy and Sachi for the Godhead, uh, you know, God's advertising agency, he'd he'd sack us for <laughs> polluting the brand. <laughs> but so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, for, for the moment, um, take um, uh, what is co- called a multi-perspectival approach, and what uh, what that means is that for a issue that is foggy and profound um, that we're trying to understand, um, a powerful way to understand it is via lenses or paradigms, and there is more than one lens or paradigm. So if this was an issue here, a crea- creative thinkers will actually have multiple paradigms around which they deliberately move. Does that make sense to you? And you'll find that all of these... Um, paradigms actually end up being essentially metaphors. Um, In other words, they are, what a metaphor does, literally um, was a trope, that's the Greek word. It means it turns your mind around. It turns your mind around, just as a simple example of this. Um, I was a strategy consultant and an organisational consultant for 30 years. One of the interesting books was called Images of Organisation. So Gareth Morgan who wrote it said this thing in the middle is called an organisation. Well nobody has ever seen one. I haven't and neither has anyone here. What have we seen? Tables, chairs, buildings, is that the organisation? We've seen brands, policy manuals, people, is that the organisation? I mean. What is an organisation? It's actually quite a modern concept. I tell people if you, if you spoke to someone in the 1600s and said, I work for an organisation, they would not have known what you're talking about. It's a modern construct. We've made it up. What Gareth said is that everyone has a mental model of an organisation, and depending on that mental model, you'll change. So for some, it's military. For some, it's information. And he had about six models of the organisation. And, and nothing wrong with any of them, but if you want to build an organization, you have a model. Very interestingly, what was the New Testament's model of the organization? Correct, the body. And the metaphor of the body, which is very much to do with complementarity, multiplicity of gifts, it's a brilliant model. I would have thought it was common sense, but Gareth Morgan never mentions that model, that a, that a modern organization has that model um, of the organization. So I think we can do the same with penal substitution. In other words, the word penal substitution, of course, is not in the Bible, Um, but it is nonetheless um, a phrase that captures a, a view of what, the mystery for me is what happened at the cross? What happened in those three days? What was the redemption and salvation event? Personally, I believe it will always remain a mystery The minute we say we've got it totally packaged up, I think we've done it a disservice. But but the penal substitution model um, has, it is essentially a judicial metaphor. So so that's very important to bear that in mind. It's all to do with crime, punishment, moral codes. That's the mental model out of which that hole in Christ alone is drawn. It's a judicial metaphor. now as a judicial metaphor it's got various implications the first thing is the problems are individual in scope i have one criminal in front of me who's facing the law court so this leads to the concept of individual sin and the question is how are individuals forgiven Um, it is legal Uh, historically if you dig into it you'll soon find this is roman this was the Roman side of the church, not the eastern side of the church. This was very much coming out of uh, the, the Roman world, which was the source of modern law. In, as a general principle, the church began to pull apart very early days between the east and the west, and the west was very, very Roman and judicial. It believed in the resurrection more than the cross. It was more about life and death than crime and punishment. Um, so therefore to, to 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 your point gordon the theology that developed around the this western was very much around the cross and what happened at the cross now my criticism of all Reformed theology and it's not mine alone but a guy wrote a book on it called richard gaffin called the soteriology of the resurrection which is put simply very few Christians in the Reformed tradition have a soteriology of the resurrection. The resurrection is a postscript. The real work is done at the cross when the sins were paid. If you say, say to somebody, well, what, is the, in what role does the resurrection play in redemption? Most people are empty handed. Um, what the metaphor apply- implies is there's a legal code to which everyone is accountable. And that legal code whether you're right or wrong sinner or not is in any legal code that is higher than the judge actually any judge who rises above the legal code is a bad judge so people don't mean this but frankly there's almost an implication there's a morality system bigger than god to which he is answerable and if he happens to not obey that morality system he's betrayed his his holiness Fourthly, uh, the metaphor implies a latent antagonism between the judge and the individual. The individual is a criminal. The judge is pure. The the opening position is one of um, alienation. Now, we might say, well, I actually heard a sermon recently from an Anglican church that made this clear. Our default position is condemnation. Quote unquote. Now, I think that's actually. Yes, yeah, completely correct. I I think that sucks somebody into saying something that's very, very anti the gospel. But nonetheless, it's there in the metaphor. It's in the metaphor that my my basic point is I am sinful. Um, And then, as I said, Gordon, the solution becomes the cross rather than the resurrection. And, uh, for instance, I, at the church I used to go to, there's a wonderful senior minister, I love him dearly, good friend, and he gave a talk on the resurrection that had nothing in it in the soteriology. And I, I went up to him after i said, my friend, have you ever thought about the fact that the resurrection was the regeneration of the whole of the created order? And what stunned me was not, I mean, stuff I live with him on, what stunned me was how he just stopped. He so said, I've never thought of that. It opened up a door for him that was just totally new. So, that, by the way, if you ever wanted to, um, for instance, if you ever want to explore what I just said about this, uh, the guy who wrote the book was Richard Gaffin, G A F F I N. The book used to be called the Soteriology of the Resurrection, and I think then the editors worked out that soteriology is not a very sexy word to have in the title of a book, um, so it's now renamed as Resurrection and Redemption. Um, yeah, it's look—it's pretty telling. He. He just opens up by, by doing something pretty simple. He looks at the great systematic theology textbooks of the 19th century, Charles Hodge and others, and just counts the number of pages devoted to the cross and the number of pages devoted to the resurrection. And it's kind of 95% to 5% as an example. If you were Gregory of Nyssa on the Greek Orthodox, even today with the Orthodox Church and the Patristic Fathers, it would have almost been the other way around. No, it was more fifty-fifty. 50, 50. Hmm? What does the Bible do, doesn't What does it actually do? Well, well that's, that, that's a question for, for you you and I to go home tonight. But I mean, what I do know is that speaking personally, having grown up under this soul model, my, you know, in my mind, the sole model of was penal substitution. That's what happened. I guess, Gordon, what it did to me was blinded me to see at the very least, other metaphors dominant and or emphasised in the one. The, for instance, I think probably the candidate for the most dominant metaphor is new creation. If you start to say, how many times does Paul talk about creation, new creation in Christ? Yeah. I,
1: I it's a, on a on a, a raining hour, on a whole afternoon. If you went through Acts and look at the evangelistic sermons in Acts, do yes. a little note of what's actually in there. And just count how much the cross gets mentioned and how much the resurrection gets
0: mentioned. That's a good one. Yeah, well, I'll just repeat for the audience and the tape that what Andrew said, another rainy afternoon with a red wine is, look at, and I think it's a really, what you've said is something I've done, as we've talked about, it's really, if we want to evangelise, the data the, the data we have for how they package the gospel is in the Acts. There are about 10, 10 to 12 sermons that are clearly summaries. It's really, really good to take them all out and say, well, what were they saying? For a start, they're not all saying the same thing. They're very agile. But to Andrew's point, how many of them emphasise the resurrection? How many of them emphasise the cross? Now, the biggest one for, relevant to us was, of course, athens acts 17. so acts 17 is very relevant to us today because it's the only one of these sermons that we know was packaged for a gentile greek audience which is much like our world in other words the other ones all assumed the audience were somewhat jewish so they began with moses and old testament scriptures um, so he doesn't he knows the audience are gentile so so that is a really i think very instructive sermon and, and and in that whole sermon to your point andrew you know the answer but what is not mentioned in the entire sermon the cross the cross forgiveness of sins nothing what is mentioned in the sermon is the resurrection by which god has made christ lord of the cosmos and judge of all so that's very interesting he, He felt clearly in that sermon, he could present the gospel without mentioning this thing about the cross. It's very interesting. Right, Um, let me uh, finish this uh, sort of summary of what I see as the implications of penal substitution by what my sweet wife often says to me, which I think has to be worked through somewhere, which is, it does seem to be authenticated by the whole Levitical sacrificial system. The, The whole Levitical system seems to really authenticate it. I'm just putting that out there. And I, you know, I think that's something I'm... My wife loves me, (laughs) but she's fairly critical. Our Bible study uh, on Wednesday night, I'd made some powerful point, I thought, and she came in and sort of hit me amidships with something, yes, but, or whatever. And one of the other ladies who knows who and me well looked at cross and smiled. just I know why God put you two together <laughs> um, what I do know, and I will say this straight away is yes it's probably true about the Levitical system but the the yes Andrew oh, let me finish my point um, what I do know is the prophets when they're talking about God's salvation and intervention on the earth never mention the Levitical system. It is not their model of salvation. Um, their models of salvation, if you start to do what Andrew, you suggested with the prophets, when they start talking about God's intervention on the earth for salvation, what do they start to, what do they use? And they do not use the Levitical system. They do not use a penal substitution model. They do not talk about anything that would fit into it. So, that's the penal. So, all I'm saying, penal substitution is a metaphor, judicial metaphor with a web of connotations. I've laid some of them out. I would not personally want to throw that out entirely, but at the very least, say there are other metaphors. Now, we've just talked about the church fathers and their metaphors. Their metaphor was loosely called Christus Victor. Um, I'm probably not the best, I mean, I could give you a summary of it. I'm not going to do that tonight. Um, I know someone who's very good at it, um, and I might well invite him to come to Gospel Conversations to give us a, what was a breathtaking talk on the Gospel according to the Patristic Fathers, which was, would you like that one night? Yeah, he's a great guy, Ben. Anyway, I'm going to say to you very, very strangely, Habakkuk is an example of offering an alternative metaphor to penal substitution I'm going to say in the Old Testament at the very least but probably the New Testament it was the dominant metaphor does anyone know what the metaphor was the answer is simple it was the Exodus it was the Exodus this was when God intervened in human affairs at a classic scale And if you start to read Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Psalms, it'll be, and they're talking about salvation and redemption. They will start looking at the Exodus as the paradigmatic salvation of the nation of Israel. Now they won't ever just look at it as history. They will look at it as a paradigm of what God's going to do for the whole earth. So straight away, you can just tell if you start to think about it, if I said the narrative of the exodus is an alternative mental model to look at salvation to penal substitution, can you begin to see how that would shift your mind if you had to get inside that paradigm? And I'm going to do that tonight. I will say one other thing that starts to happen, which gets a bit tricky. There was one other candidate for redemption, which gets sucked in by the prophets. Does anyone know what that other candidate for redemption or God's great intervention was? Creation. Creation. No, he doesn't get a play. at. Well, we'll come to that in a moment, but uh, we'll come to that in a moment, but what we would call the devil doesn't. No, it's not. It's creation. And often they get woven in together. And that's what Habakkuk does. Habakkuk. Is um, looking at, well, let me uh, say, now I'll I'll go on with this. Habakkuk is looking at a um, totally broken situation that looks helpless, and he's looking for how God's going to intervene. And there's only three chapters in Habakkuk, and in his mind, what takes over out of, you know, he begins with doubt, skepticism, wrangling with God, and that's chapters one and chapter two. I'll go through this a bit more in detail. In the talk and that that'll be the end of tonight chapter three um the article i mentioned um by matthew ansties says uh, i think he's got a brilliant summary of chapter three which is very famous it's a hymn which he, he he calls an astonishing theophany that is cosmic in scope and draws primarily from the exodus and job in which yahweh fills the stage of the earth with lightning and thunder it's a good sentence so what's a theophany a theophany is a revelation of god as he intervenes in creation and he calls this a stunning theophany in which habakkuk draws from two sources Exodus and, and Job, or, or whether he draws from them, because I guess I, we, we know that, have ex, we don't know when Job was written is what I'm saying. But. Um, so uh, the idea that the Exodus is actually the most biblically used metaphor for salvation should not shock us, should it? Yeah, it, it to be honest with you, it never occurred to me in the first 50 years of my Christian life penal substitution was so dominant. Well, penal substitution suited Luther, suited Calvin. They are very magisterial. Uh, don't read their biographies too much. It'll turn you off because they were on the side of punitive despots. Read what Luther did in the war and the revolt of the peasants in southern Germany, very much inspired by Luther himself. They thought, oh, this is a, a call to freedom, Let's kind of, it's almost like a trade union movement. Well, Luther backed the princes who crushed them mercilessly. Yeah, we all make mistakes, as Greg Norman said uh, about his golf tournament in defending the Saudi prince who murdered Khashoggi. We all make mistakes. Um, the idea of um, penal substitution is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an idea that's very dominant but it's a very, very modern idea compared to the Exodus. Now, the, the, I think God providentially helped me on this because I read an article, as I, I tend to read like a butterfly flips around flowers, you know, so there's very little logic to it. But um, the article's important and I've asked the author, who is the director of research at the Old Testament in Moore College? George Athos. And it's a phenomenal article, I think, it's a great article by George, called The Creation of Israel, The Cosmic Proportions of the Exodus Event. And he, where he lays out virtually what I've just said, because he, he, he's not going to, being at more College, going to launch out into penal substitution, but the trajectory is there, that this Exodus event is the paradigmatic it's not just a history, it's a paradigm of God's intervention in human affairs. It is, because salvation is when God intervenes, right? And this is the paradigm. So it's it's actually a very, very good article. And um, so I'm not the only one who's kind of thought of this. Rightio, so um, the reason that, so what I want to do, the reason I'm gonna do this over two nights is to be honest with you, to get inside this alternative metaphor is such a, a shift of the mind. You start to look at everything differently. And pro- probably the most important words that I think Matthew Anstey said was, it's cosmic in scope. Everything just gets bigger. And that seems to be where Habakkuk uh, was. So let's now pursue the metaphor in Habakkuk of um, Conquest. Um, so what I'll do for the, uh, I thought I'd do just for the rest of the night was, uh, I first of all, just give an, uh, an overview of one, two, and three, and how chapter three is the climax, like the big picture. Um, I'll do it first by a sketch, and then I want to look. I don't know how far we'll get with all this, but the imagery in the different modules, because the imagery is extremely important. The class of images changes, and that's almost that clue. And that'll be enough for tonight. The actual exploration of well, what about the Exodus? How would we take the Exodus as an extended analogy for what God did in Christ? Um, that, I'll talk about that next time. It's, it's something I saw about 15, 20 years ago, and it just blew my mind. It's it is so rich. Now, um, so is that okay? I'll, I'll pause there. In any particular points? Questions? We still on track? Just
1: thinking Passover lamb in the midst of the Exodus. And that's,
0: that's well, we've overplayed the Passover lamb. You see, the penal substitution model that I had took did go to Exodus and went to the Passover lamb. But if you say, well, hang on, that's a subset of an extended story that begins with the plagues, right? begins with a contest between pharaoh and pharaoh and moses has the, has moses forces pursuing them has the red sea has the, what, what if that's the metaphor the whole play yeah. of which this is a subset and yeah. which just loosely speaking the clearly the baptismal metaphor entering into death and resurrection is this um is the red sea you know so so that's now, now the overview of um, Habakkuk is, is the first part of chapter one. Um, the very, very first part, you see him lamenting Israel's fall from grace and the apostasy of Israel. Only about five verses. Um, then he, like Jeremiah, sees the impending doom of Babylon, Who we all know sacked Jerusalem mercilessly in five eighty six BC. Think Putin, think blasted apartment building. They just they nuked the city. And that was to all intents and purposes the end of Judah, the end of Israel. And he he looks at Babylon. As the forces of savagery on the earth and that's that part and then the second part of chapter 1 so he's looking at the villains the second part is poignant because of chapter 1 he looks at the victims the hapless victims he has an extended metaphor that we're fish being caught. We're just like, yeah. and, and you just think of those poor people being interviewed in Ukraine, you know, tottery old grandmothers, wheeling prams, trying to escape bombs. We're just fish being caught in the net. We have zero agency. That's how it, so it's, it's, it's almost a lament over the stage of savagery governing the earth. Then in chapter There's a big pause in chapter 2, which is famous, where he says, this is too much for me to absorb. Like, where's God in all of this? I'm going to stop and think. And that's where the phrase very famously picked up in the New Testament, the just shall live by his faith. I need faith to kind of shine my light on this, otherwise I'm totally lost. Then in chapter 2, he has judgment coming, apparently, uh, which are the woes. The fi- there are five of them. To Babylon. At face value, that's finished the story. You know, Chapter 2 says, at the end of the day, like Putin's going to get his justice hurts. Don't you worry about that. At the end of the day, justice will happen. Another nation will arise, knock them out. So it looks like um, this has been, you know, the sort of villainy and sin and this is the judgment and that's the end. But it's not the end because we still haven't got cosmic scale redemption, which is chapter three. And chapter three introduces this theophany of God's answer, which transcends even this. If all God can do is smack the Putins of the world on the head and knock them out, all he's done is defined himself negatively by, I'm here to get rid of, get rid of mess and, and judge people. Well, and? So this, however, seems to lift the whole scale of what God is doing um, to uh, more epic proportions and and this chapter three is what draws on exodus does that make sense as the big picture of how his mind goes and and then he finishes famously with the last the last two verses are on every kind of fridge you know they're beautiful though the fig tree shall not blossom and there be no fruit in the vines um, yet shall i rejoice in the lord i'll joy in the god of my salvation which matthew anst in his article quotes and says uh, apparently is it's was published in a newspaper in Sydney in 1825, and it's, as a poem, and it's the first example of poetry written by someone in Australia in, in, uh, that we have. <laughs> Havoc 3, three, seventeen to eighteen, done yeah. in. So that's that story. Well, the. So, what I'm going to look at now to finish with um, is. Uh, just working through the language of this and the way that I want to have some changes that this metaphor offers or if, if they 're not their extensions or contrasts with the um, penal substitution model in the penal su- in, in this model we 're about to see, the enemy is not. A sin or a sinner or a moral code, the enemy are demonic and bestial forces who govern the earth. It seems to be well that's inexorable. These are the enemies. on the one hand, on the one hand, they are certainly nation state rulers. Babylon was the first of the like the, well not the, Assyria was the first big empires that were cruel heartless and savage and seemed to have no regard for freedom of others they were reincarnations of egypt and pharaoh Um, but behind them were demonic forces the second contrast is that the the field of play was was not an individual and their morality. The penal substitution model suggests the field of God's interest is you and your moral system. Forget about Mars and Jupiter and governments and the grass. It's you and your moral system. In Habakkuk, the field of play is the earth and its harmony and its harmonious rule. That's the field of play. As a matter of fact, the earth is seen as a victim in some of the very poetic verses. And the scale of interest is social, not individual. So it's all about uh, big, large social systems. But they're social going on cosmic, not social going on individual. And they lead to a question, and the question is different, the, the punitive uh, the penal substitution model is who will be saved? Who is righteous and who will be saved? Whereas the question in this uh, Exodus model, sometimes called, I might call it the conquest model, or the, you know, the struggle for the earth model, is who will rule the earth and how. That, that is the question, who will rule the earth and how. Um, so it entails, as the an antagonistic forces to God, not just individual sin, it entails bigger demonic forces, the nature of evil, um, and so on. And the enigma of the apparent flourishing of evil systems. You know, why, why do bad guys win? Why does Putin End up being a multi-billionaire. Why is he still advancing in eastern Ukraine? Why? So, so that's the the way that this metaphor shifts our focus. Um, the, the I'll finish with um, a look at the text. Now, this this can get. Like, you know, I am a little bit. Um, wary of doing this because it's, you know, it's a Friday night and it's late, um, but I do want to do a bit of it. Um, could you hand, uh, just hand those around? This is the whole of the book of Habakkuk on a page. Um, are, we, are we okay for another, if I give another 10, 15 minutes on the language? It's just the text. If you can get Habakkuk in your Bibles, it'll do. It's, it's just, that's just the text. Um, well, True. I mean, uh, so the question is, am I saying that organisations and nations have an inner soul that animates their activities? Um, Yes, and that, well, I mean, possibly so. I mean, it's a very interesting question. The idea that nations have got a soul and an identity is very interesting to me, it probably is to you too. It's not the perspective that the prophets had. They they had a different perspective, particularly behind the big nations of a demonic force behind them, which could be the spirit behind them. And that's most famously captured, as we all know, in Daniel chapter 7. He sees the four great kingdoms, beginning with Babylon, as demonic beasts. So when I look at Nazism, when I look at... Cambodia and Pol Pot, when I look at these periods of savagery in human history, when I look at Syria, and I'm an intelligent person, relatively, I studied history, you know, I've read a lot, and I ask myself the question, can I adequately explain this on a human scale? You know, this was the plans of 16 people who got together and said, let's create mayhem, and, or did it seem to be they're caught up in something bigger? something bigger and worse and i'd have to say they're caught up in something bigger and worse like some awful spirit that captured a nation or a whole group of people so i see that in daniel with his image of demonic forces which the new testament often calls archons or kingdom or principalities and powers behind them now Just to make this point clear, we don't think this way. We think, you know, very much differently. But if you want to know how important it was, I'm not going to go here now, but the whole conquest metaphor, which certainly David Bentley Hart completely backs up, read Colossians 1 as one of many examples. The very, very famous hymn in Colossians 1, 15. You know it all? Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So far, so good. Now, all of us are thinking firstborn of all creation. Well, that sounds cute. He must be that sunsets, breezes, gentle waves. That's creation. Okay. For by him were all things made that were made. Big promise, but I get it. I guess that meant he made the trees, he made the flowers. I guess that's what it means. But Paul extends it. And what does he say? Whether things visible or invisible. Hang on, what's he mean? Things invisible? He made things invisible. Whether kingdoms, rulers, authorities, or powers, all things were made by him. Go figure. He didn't go to sunsets and flowers. He said what was made by him was kingdoms rulers archons and powers so he sees the world and the governance of the world through the fabric of vast rule systems that's how paul saw it i would never have written that if i had an empty bit of paper. i mean i would not have written any of it if i had an empty bit of paper but i certainly wouldn't have written that bit like what's he see what's he see behind the created order so that's where this idea of vast uh, principalities and powers behind us are anyway let's um Let's move on. And if, you, if you've got a text, I, won't try, I, I, I could try and project. Do you want me to try and project the text, or are you okay without it? Um, here. So the, what you'll see when, in verse 5 of chapter 1, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. I'm doing a work in your days you wouldn't believe if told. I'm raising up the Chaldeans that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome Now I just, am thinking of SBS news every night in Ukraine as I read this, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They are totally self-defined in their moral systems. Their horses are swifter than leopards more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh they laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. And let's look at this for an incredible judgment. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Man, you could write that over the Hitlers and Putins of the world. Guilty men whose own might is their God. No restraint no responsibility so that's the babylonians now if we look at the imagery you tell me what the imagery is there's a class of imagery here you tell me what it is the similes and metaphors animals leopards wolves eagles and then he does talk about their horsemen they are animalistic they, they, they have the brutality of animals with no moral code to restrain them. So th- th- this, is, this is the imagery of humanity at its worst, human systems that are like animals with, with no reason to restrain them, um, and no moral code to restrain them, totally having the moral code of a wolf or a leopard that rips open its prey without restraint. without restraint without restraint it's chilling but that's that's what we get so that that class of imagery then gives way to the second class in the second part which i mentioned before and i won't read it all out where the victims are like fish and they're like fishermen who have a huge net and sweep it up. The victims are absolutely powerless, like the, the Jews were in Egypt. Um, and it's this, in, this terrible sense in the second half of the chapter, the imagery that takes over is this fish net image. So it's powerlessness. Savagery, powerlessness. And just think of what we're seeing on our TV screens every night. This is the earth I gave to you to rule. You've got to think, Genesis 1, I'm giving you the earth to roar. This is what you're doing to it. Um, interestingly, and we won't go into it now, you might notice a change of voice as he talks about the victims. Does anyone know what I mean by voice? Grammatically. You. Who's he talking to? Um, God. God. What's he saying about God? Um, Exactly. How, how are you letting this happen? I mean, don't you have that feeling when you watch the TV screens? Like, why don't you go and? I just keep. I've, I've prayed for ages that Putin would get a massive heart attack and die. Why? Why not? Why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting? What's the name of the Syrian guy? Terrible man, ophthalmologist of all things, a doctor. What's his name? The head of Syria, Assad. Assad. Uh, You look at that man, you know, educated in London, ophthalmologist, and he looks so demure. Uh, It's chilling when I see that man. Um, Reminds me of Hannah Arendt's famous phrase. You know, Hannah Arendt, when she went to the Nuremberg trial, she was looking, I'm gonna finally see the face of evil. As a Jew, she was waiting to see the face of evil. And she saw mild-mannered men dressed in suits like accountants who were the head of the Gestapo. And she, her famous phrase was she saw the banality of evil. So he says, well, where are you in this God? So that's, chapter, that's how this opening bit goes. Then we get into chapter two. And in chapter two, you get the woes, which we won't, there are five of them. Five woes, which look like the end of the story. Um, look like, it looks like here, um, we're going to get somewhere. Um, I call them domestic in scale. They are about Babylon, but they're less cosmic. They're more like every bad social situation, you know, a bitchy soccer club, a village that's not well run. So the first one is woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. The second one, woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high. The third one, woe to him who builds a city by bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Yeah. Think Sicily, think every village run by a mafia boss. Uh, fourth one, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors till they are drunk and then the the fifth one is idolatry. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. So there's woes, but it's almost a more domestic and local scale. Now you'll notice I won't go into it now that he moves away from metaphor to vignettes. So the little examples are like mini stories that you can you can read. Oh yeah, you know I can identify with this. I had a bad boss, or I can identify with this. You know, I've I've been duped and so on, or and so on. So the the overriding effect of of the woes is that any society which is disrupted by exploiters and power mongers, um, and in a sense, we can all identify with that. So that's chapter two. Chapter three um, finishes, and, and I'll just foreshadow it, and then next time go into more detail. You'll notice, here's how it begins. O Lord... I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Remember how doubt he challenged God in chapter one. Where are you in all this? Your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Show me where you are in the midst of human context and problems because I believe it and you've got to be here. And then he says, God came from Tamman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendour covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. I won't go further, but if I just read that out, can you begin to see an entirely different class of metaphor emerge? What, what is he invoking when he says, his splendor covered the heavens. The, uh, the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light and rays flashed from his hand. What's the predominant imagery? What's he comparing God to? Cosmic. Creation and cosmic light. Can you see how this totally eclipses these leopards and wolves? Like when we read them, we thought... That How can you get bigger than that? Well, you can get bigger than that if I'm talking about the sun. If I'm talking about I held my hand out and rays flash from my hand. Clearly it's Genesis 1 and it's clearly sort of, it'll go into Exodus as well because we'll go into that. It it mingles up because the next verse is, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He's talking about the plagues with Pharaoh. So he's now evoking a force of scale far greater and more cosmic than any human ruler, be they Babylon, be they Putin, could ever, ever have, which is I control energy. I control light. I'm the source of all things. And that's how he develops chapter three. So he ends up with a picture of God, vastly bigger than any of the other ones. All the imagery in three is this, hence is, it's a theophany, a stunning theophany of God's cosmic power and where I'll go next time, is how that power, so how is this cosmic creative power evidenced in redemption? The answer is in resurrection, when God recreated the materials of the cosmos in the body of Jesus. That's the claim of the New Testament. The most common, the word resurrection is very unfortunate because we tend to sort of slip over it, If you want to try and play with it in your mind, call it the new creation, the beginning of creation, um, where God recreated materiality and matter so that it could shine uh, like the same rays of light that created the world in the first place. And that's, by the way, when you begin to see that, oh, okay, so God... Was 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 reharnessing the power of creation. That's what was happening at this redemptive event. Um, we we now got a a different scale uh, and a different uh, model of what it, of what in fact redemption is than just clearing a guilt. We're talking about the creation of a new order that will supplant all the orders of the earth and introduce finally great harmony and kingship on the earth. So. That's, um, that's pretty exciting to think about. And I don't know about you, but when I do think about it, it's inspiring, uh, but I feel I'm just stumbling towards it. it. But by the way, it's everywhere in the New Testament. I began quoting the very famous Colossians 1, when it says of Christ, he is the firstborn of all creation. It's absolutely a double whammy. He's talking about, what Maximus the Confessor talked about was how the, the Logos, the Son of God, was the architect of the first creation and the second creation. So what we've got is two creations. That's what we've got. And that's the model that the patristic fathers, Christus Victor, was. They, that was the model that dominated their mind and they explored. Now, you can begin to see forgiveness in that as a subset of that, by all means. The cross is part of it. And how the cross plays into it is interesting, but certainly um, it, it is, I find, a far more satisfying perspective. And uh, amazed when I sort of saw it, you know, so clearly there in, I mean, Habakkuk's important because that chapter three is probably the, the most poetically elevated um, summary of the Exodus in the Old Testament, possibly. Whew, well, that's a lot for Friday night, isn't it? Like,
1: Thank
0: you. Yes, I think that'll it do. Makes
1: us have to think big, doesn't it? But does uh, because you look at Putin and Ukraine, and and we've got a God who's making a new heaven and a new earth, and somehow all of that that's happening he's, he's going to get there through in the midst of this stuff that. Um, Somehow even part of his plan, but we don't understand.
0: Well, it's very interesting because, um, oh, look, I agree with you, Michael, it's big picture stuff, but you're a big picture guy. I mean, you're the guy who began talking to me, like you take Polkinghorne, mm-hmm. John Polkinghorne's view of you know, creation and information, um, although he may or may not <coughs> go <coughs> specifically into this space. But clearly, he's opening up a cosmic sense, a mysterious sense of creation yes. um, that is very much more in accord with cosmic, this.
1: cosmos, pregnant with life.
0: Pregnant with life. The the I did quote um, the great Russian theologian last time, uh, Sergei Bulgakov, who David Bentley Hart told me was his favourite he thought the greatest theologian of the 20th century. And none of us have read Bulgakov, but I have have bought two of his books and um, just bought a third one, my dealer, (laughs) today. Um, Bulgakov had this incredible statement at the beginning of his famous book called The Lamb of God. Um, which is uh, memorable and uh, which is there is a question that slithers across the face of the earth like a serpent who will govern the earth the man God or the God man that's how he opens his book now that's a different question as to ha- what about sin that's like who's going to govern this the created order the created order because we I mean, and we don't need any more Paul to tell us this, although he was way ahead of it, the anthropic principle, which is now returning to science. It looks like our consciousness is creating, but, you know, we're just vastly interacting with reality. And that's what Esther Meek will talk about. It's mind bending stuff, but it looks like we're far more important than ever we thought we were. And when you begin to see savagery, you begin to, we're using these God given powers for absolutely demonic ends. I think you know that I don't like the phrase the fall in Genesis 3. It's not biblical. It's very much tying into the the kind of sin-based model. I like the phrase the takeover. The takeover. Because I speculate that the devil and demonic forces do not have the God-given faculties we do, including the ability to create new things that's just a totally private speculation, but it's not that private. I mean, I I can back it up a fair amount from scripture. But if it's true, and if I, the devil, cannot do what you, the human being, can do, i.e. imagine and and sub-create, but I, the devil, want to absolutely antagonize God and ruin the creation, the best thing I can do is take you over and you start listening to me and I channel my evil through your creativity. And you'll make nuclear bombs and stuff. <laughs> I, um, I'm glad you're right there with me uh, on these. Um, what, what I was told Simon Smart we're going to go for penal substitution, Simon he said, Tony, could you leave some sacred cows <laughs> on the table for me? I'm so glad you're with me, Andrew. It's wonderful to hear you say all that. I mean, what you've what you've said, I think we should make part of a, a, a talk. You know, what, what do we do with? It? I mean. Among other things, what you have implied is this developing model in the Old Testament. Because you and I, I mean, you're quoting the prophets. Um, I mentioned last time in Jeremiah, a stunning verse where God actually says, I never commanded you. uh, The verse is, "I, I I did not command you, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's, I did not command you to create the kind of system of laws when you came out of Egypt, I just wanted you to know and understand me. And famously, as I said last time, the NIV couldn't stomach that. So they put the word just in, or only, I did not only command you um, to, to moderate what looks like a stunning, shocking statement by Sh- Jeremiah. Um, that's an example of why, you know, the NIV is um, a bit of a distorted translation. I checked that with, uh, you weren't here last week. I checked that with Ian Proven, because yep. the, e, the English Standard Version, which he's recommended to me, Ian, of course, is a professor of Old Testament at Regent, one of the great Old Testament scholars of the world and one of our friends here. ESV doesn't put the word just or only in. It says, I did not command you. And then I wrote to Ian and he said, he said well, the ESV is right, the NIV is wrong. And the question is, what does it mean? We we should stop there. Um, I mean, I'm happy to keep chatting for some of us.